You're listening to the Home Staging Show podcast. I'm your host, Cindy Lin. This is a show where we talk about all things real estate, home staging, and selling your home to live and to sell. Welcome back to the show. This is episode 142. Welcome back to another episode of the Home Staging Show. So something we've been trying to test and experiment with with our new free community at stagemore.school is that we want to do free community talks, inviting stagers coming in to share their expertise and their experience in their home staging businesses. So our first one is going to take place this month on the 19th where we're going to talk about multiple streams of income for home sagers. And I got two great sagers, Jennifer and also Bridget. They're going to come on and talk about their experiences of building multiple streams of income for their home saving business. We're going to put the sign up link in the show notes. Just go to sageroom.com slash podcast to look for the sign up link or go to sageroom.com slash events. You will find all our community events on that page there. And also remember, we also still have that monthly saging challenge and you can win a hundred dollar gift certificate for our shop. So if you're interested in submitting your home saging projects before and after photos, just go to sagingawards.com slash challenge to find out more information about this month's theme and then enter yourself. We're going to link that in the show notes as well. And we also got a live workshop with Nikki. I hope you enjoyed the previous episode about improving your sales skills as a home stager. And Nikki really is a specialist on all things sales and also building a really organic relationship with your staging client. So this is something that she specializes in and you can tell from the last episode, I'm sure. She really knows her stuff when it comes to sales. So the sign up now is live on our website. Just go to stagemore.com and you'll be able to find the sign up link. And today on the show, I'm super excited to get Jason on the show. I've been following him on Instagram for a while and actually did not know this before our interview that he actually also came from a real estate agent background. And this is why his marketing is so on point. I just love how he always breaks down in stats in terms of what staging has done statistically for his listings. And I think that is absolutely amazing and something that real estate agents really respond to as well because they are running their own real estate businesses and they're also data-driven people. So a little bit about Jason. Jason is a founder of Sage to Sell Home, a leading boutique staging firm in New York City and also Brooklyn. He's known for his abilities to repeatedly break sales records, reintroduce properties that other agents and independent sellers were unable to close and he can deliver dramatic property transformations. He's also the founding agent at Compass in the New York City. Jason and his company, Sage to Sell Home, have been awarded the Best Luxury Home Sager and Best Occupied Home Sager in the United States by RISA, the Real Estate Staging Association. And he also has a global outreach of over 44,000 followers on Instagram. Property Spark has named him the number three real estate professional on social media. So he has a really great reputation when it comes to creating truly innovative real estate sales campaigns through his unparalleled attention to detail. Jason has an innate ability to transform a space from what it is to what it should be in order to achieve the highest return for his sellers and also to help his buyers understand value and opportunity. With over 17 years of experience and a combination of his extensive knowledge in development, preservation, historical trends, closed sales data, and comparables matched with design and photography, Jason and Sage to Sell Home can offer cost-effective solutions yielding high return results. He has been featured in Wall Street Journal, DNA Info, and Six Square Feet. 
and he also has been recognized by the New York Times and Forbes magazine. I mean, Jason is absolutely amazing. I cannot wait to share with you what he talked about today on the show. So, without further ado, let's start the show. the show i really love your work and i was thrilled when you said yes to be on a podcast so before we started today can you tell us a little bit about you and your home staging business yeah so i'm jason saff the founder of stage to sell home in new york and brooklyn i have been a real estate agent for almost 20 years and stage to sell sort of organically grew from that i'm not a trained interior designer i was just a real estate agent who had listings that had problems and all of them were fixable through design and design was always my passion and hobby like (laughs) when i was a little kid and my friends were playing baseball like i was reading my mom's martha stewart living in my bedroom so it really just sort of grew organically from that of working on these properties where there would always be problems and people would verbalize the problems like the real sort of start of it was I got in a rental building, the same apartments continually come up every single year. And for every apartment, there's a mirror image of that apartment. So it was a 42 unit building. So half of the apartments, they're all identical. And people used to come in and say, like, you can't fit a bed in this room. It's not a bedroom. And you could. And so I'd stand there with a measuring tape and try and show them. And it was just awkward and weird. And then I remember at one point, like, I put tape on the floor to show, like, where a queen size bed could fit and it looked sort of like a crime scene, you know, like you're expecting to see like a body on the floor. And so one day I was just talking with the landlord. I'm like, how about instead of having this conversation of price reductions and incentives, like, can we just go buy what will make look like a bed? Right. And we'll just bring it apartment to apartment. Every time we'll rent one of the apartments, we'll bring it to the next one. And the next one, he was like, it's actually a brilliant idea. The 30 years I've had this building, like no one's ever said that. We always have this problem. And that's really where everything comes from. This sort of, you know, this understanding of buyers walking into a home and sort of fixating on the problems. And now it's sort of pre that as everything is starting online now, right? Like when this all really started, there wasn't really as much sort of online ads or things like that. But now it's how do you get people through the door beforehand? So that's where stage to sell came from and how I started it. it was just problem solving as a real estate agent. That is amazing. So do you still sell real estate now? A little bit. Stage to sell in New York has grown exponentially over the last few years. So I'm actually one of the founding agents at Compass in New York. What I've had to come to grips with is that I don't have the time to fully do both in the capacity that I feel best serves the property of the owner. So I typically, there's teams of agents that I work with, who I stage with, who I refer the listings to that are their specialty, whether it's geographically, demographically, like whatever it is, I have just sort of list of agents who I'll partner with. I'll redo the place and then they sell it. So it all works out perfectly. Yeah, that's amazing. It's incredible you say you don't have any art background because it's really hard to tell that from your work. Like your work is beautiful. Thank and I you. love, yeah, I love all the artwork and life accessories a selection. They still look very big boxy, you know, because I think a lot of stages portfolio wise, everybody shops at similar inventory stores. 
So you kind of see that similarity, but with yours, it looks completely custom. It's completely designed just for that property, which I found very amazing. Thank you. Yeah, I try really hard. I mean, I think one of the advantages of being a real estate agent is sort of knowing the property type and who's buying where and then sort of tailoring it for each sort of like miniature or micro market. Fundamentally, a lot of the same pieces do translate from neighborhood to neighborhood demographic, but some things don't. And then other things, it's it's really sort of the way that you put them together or swap out certain pieces that really make an impact on the space, whether it be like the key artwork in the living room or whatever it is. But sometimes I'm able to take like the core foundational pieces, translate them somewhere else or take out sort of like the bones, like the bed frames and things like that, pillow inserts. And then I can sort of in my head create an inventory list where I'm taking things that are just very specific to the area. And that's, you know, one of the unique things about Manhattan and Brooklyn is there's so many submarkets within each of like the larger areas. But, you know, it's funny. I, while in some ways it's great, in other ways it's also just really harder as well in terms of just being so specific for each property. You have to spend much more time on it you're a little bit more invested. You're obviously spending more on accessories and artwork. And, you know, it's interesting in a lot of the networking groups that I'm involved in, you know, someone will say like, you know, we're in and out the door in like three hours. And I'm like, oh my God, (laughs) you know, we're typically like with a one or two bedroom, we're done in an an afternoon. And it does take forever to get in and out of stuff in Manhattan, just dealing with like traffic in the buildings. But yeah, I mean, that's part to having things be so specific. Yeah, I would imagine the logistics in Manhattan is a bit insane and crazy. <laughs> You'll drive me nuts. Yeah, it's definitely, it's one of the biggest challenges, right? Like there's so many rewards to it, but it's also, you know, you're dealing with so many other things that when you're in just a market where it's single family homes and you just have sort of like the freedom to come and go as you please, it makes it more challenging. My operations manager, definitely like it's hard. For him. It's, it's a challenging part. Yeah. So how big is your current team now? It's me, my operations manager, and I have four part-time people who help out just in different capacities. That's great. It looks like you work a lot of late nights. because I see your Instagram stories. You're always working in the evening, it seems like. Yeah. You know, it's something I try and show to people to let them know, like, how involved it is and how much time it takes and how sort of, like, committed I am to the process. I don't try and work every night. I have a four and a half year old and I'd like to really spend time with her and and do story time and things like that. So there is a balance, but the sort of the market here, there hasn't been the typical seasonality like everyone's seeing, you know, obviously we're in the most unique sort of housing market that we've ever been in, but the sort of lead up lately to sort of post Labor Day weekend, I mean, it's nonstop. Like, being away on vacation right now for five days is very challenging. <laughs> I know. And thank you so much for being here during your vacation time. Yeah. And what is the New York real estate market like right now for you? It's gotten incredibly busy. It was still sort of trailing behind everyone else nationally, but it picked up about six months ago. The secondary markets and the suburban markets had been super busy, just like it has been everywhere else in the US, but Manhattan that sort of lagged behind. I think people were scared to come back to the city, but it's really just been 
absolutely incredible the last six months. Yeah. In the media, they keep saying everyone's moving out of New York, but it's hard to tell what is real because most of the time when you actually live there, it feels a different experience, I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, listen, a lot of people left, but a lot of people are coming back. And a lot of people left Manhattan for the suburbs of Manhattan. And some of them will be back. I think it just depends essentially what your family status is. If you have two or three kids and you sort of thinking about leaving Manhattan and you left, chances are you won't be back. It's just, it's tough. I mean, I have one child and it's challenging, right? Like the logistics of things, the costs of school, just getting around. And, you know, like right now we're out in the country and it's nice to see my daughter just run around and play. Like everything's an open field, you know? And so we don't have that in the city. So people with two and three kids, I think, a lot of them won't come back, but New York's such a resilient place and it's the kind of place that so many people have always wanted to live in. So we're seeing a lot of people come in who have said, like, I've always wanted to live in New York. Yeah. Like that would be you someday. <laughs> yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. And so what is your typical staging process like? So actually the minutia of it right now, how busy we are with a lot of the properties here, a lot of them have past sales histories. So I can sort of send a ballpark estimate or a lookbook, portfolio, PR, and sort of get a verbal commitment from the owner. And if they verbally commit, then we'll sort of move to the walkthrough. So I'll do a walkthrough. Often it's still occupied, spend time there. I go in with my spreadsheet and just sort of like start to lay out visually what I'm going to do, get my ideas, take notes, take my measurements. And then we also do a lot of cosmetic work where we're changing out the lighting, changing out hardware, doing removable wall treatments, painting. So sort of figuring out like whether or not the space will benefit from that. And then I typically, the week before the install, I try and go back to the apartment or the house and spend like a good hour to two hours and really think about what's going to work, what isn't going to work, what are the problems I missed when it was occupied or the broker was there talking to me and wouldn't stop talking. Like I always sort of joke, like I go back and I kind of bond with the space and figure it out. It's nice to be able to slow down and figure that out because that sort of allows me to ensure I'm bringing the right pieces, not have to make multiple trips. I'm really big on trying to be efficient. And when you're managing 14 to 20 projects at one time, that's often what you have to be like ruthlessly efficient in your process. And then there's times where there's some properties like, and typically like really old houses that I just love and the detail and the craftsmanship that you don't get in the newer construction that we have a lot of. And like the minute someone hands me the keys and tells me I can go, like I'm in there, like Sunday afternoon, whatever. Like there's been a few where I just, I might start three weeks early just because I really want to create something special and unique. And if I have the time to do it, it allows me the creative side. Because sometimes, like I said, we're often in and out in the course of a day, but there's other ones where there's something special about them. And I love if I have the time and the house is just sitting empty, I'll tell the owner, your agreement won't start until after photography, this is the date, but I want to be in there and, and make something like just magical. Yeah, I think that's amazing. I think it really shows in your work as well. I mean, it, it feels 
lived in, but not like the gross kind of lived in, right? Yeah, the fancy kind of lived in, like how you would imagine Sex in the City apartment looks like, you know, or a set from the movie. And I think yeah. that is really good. Because I always love watching, what is it? Diane Keaton has done a few. Nancy, what's that director's name? Oh, Nancy Myers or Nancy? Nancy. Meyer, yeah, yeah. Her set, her houses always look amazing, right? Really it's, like, it's perfectly yeah. amount of live-in and comfort and style without feeling all the dirty dishes or all the unpleasantries. So, yeah. So, I think that's one of the things that it's really strong and coming through from your work, and it really has a really strong point of view as well, which I think is rare. Part of one of the things that I do a lot of, I don't have the time to do it on every project, but. A lot of them, I basically handle the photography. So there's one company in particular that I work with on almost every project. I just love them. I know every photographer. I know the editing team. And it's not a question of like, there's no referral fee. It's not about trying to milk an extra percentage off something. They're just, they are so incredible to work with. And to me... There are just certain properties where if I don't go and do the photography, like there are things that you're moving, you're cheating, you're editing. Some of my best work has actually come from just being there with the photographer and saying like, okay, so like, what do you see? And within the course of like five minutes, we may have rearranged an entire living room or a lot of times what you're seeing as the end result in photography on sort of social media or even in the listing ad and photography is not necessarily how it's laid out for sale or laid out for end use. And that's often something like a discussion I have a lot with people on social media who ask questions just recently, like I did a poll of before and afters. And so there was this one room that I did that in particular, I put the bed in the center of the windows. And like a few people wrote, like, isn't that bad energy? Like it's bad feng shui that it leaves a room. And, you know, I had to explain like, all those things and principles may be true for the person living there. But if you look at the two images side by side, there's one image that completely grabs your attention and the other one, everything is just pushed off to the walls and you just sort of lose the grandness of the room. But if you look at it from this perspective, and that's, you know, I talk a lot in my work about creating perspective and offering a different perspective. And so there is often a difference in what we're capturing in photography and for marketing or to create that hero image versus how you would live in it or versus how potentially buyers may even see it. And that's, again, one of the benefits of trying to control your final image. At the end of the day, we often hear this from the agents and sometimes like I'll pop into open houses. Like there are people that write, that see the ad online and they get forwarded to me a lot. People are literally like, this is my house. I know that open houses on the day, but like I want to come tomorrow and I'm buying it. I want everything in it. Do not show it to another person. And that's sort of like what drives me to be that meticulous with the imagery and photography, because I know that it does have such a huge impact. And the way that people look at things online now, you know, like 15 years ago, people didn't have as much access to this sort of imagery, you know, through Instagram and everything else. Like we're such a visually driven culture now. I always liken it to sort of like, Tinder or whatever you may be on, like Tinder, Scruff, whatever your your thing is. But, you know, it's like people have the attention span of like a nanosecond. You're either right or left. And so 
creating that perfect hero image shot is so important. Like we often find, especially when we redo properties that have been on the market, we often get buyers that say that come back and they're like, I think I've been here, but I'm not sure. And it's so fascinating when someone buys the apartment they came to a year, a year and a half before and completely passed on. But like something gravitated them to it now. And it's so interesting because we're not renovating, like everything is cosmetic. Exactly. And I think it's all really about creating that aspirational lifestyle that buyers want to buy into. And a lot of it, I always explain it like catalogs, for example, Cranberry, Paris Barn. And I used to freelance on those kind of photo shoots and as, as an assistant. And, you know, a lot of times, we laugh. There used to be a blog, and it's about this fictional couple, Elaine and Gary. And then basically, it's all about catalog living. And it's kind of a mockery of it. It's like, look, Elaine, I found a perfect basket for architectural plans. Like, no one lives like that, right? Right. right. Like, in the party barn. Maybe. I'm like, <laughs> I do. <laughs> but yeah, it's really about creating that lifestyle that people want to buy into. That's why I think staging, in a way, we are building that kind of dream movie set house, you know, that oh, people want to buy into. Yeah, I mean, we hear that all the time, how it's so interesting when people go into someone else's apartment who lives there and like all their stuff is there and the closets are theirs and like the smells are theirs. Like it's a very different experience than walking into something where a creative has sat there and thought about every single detail and sort of has tailored it to connect with someone emotionally. Whereas oftentimes when you're going through someone's home where it's occupied and unstaged or just left empty, like it just feels cold or people often say like, they feel like I'm trespassing or like I'm intruding when I'm in someone else's home. Yeah, exactly. So how long did it take for you to build your business to the way it is now? I sort of created the outline and the marketing of it. It's probably 15 years, but I would say like what it is today. It's probably been the last like three to four years where I've been very fortunate to be an agent of Compass and to be there since the very beginning of 2013 when it was this tech startup called Urban Compass. And saw all the trial and error of things and what didn't work and what worked and being around people that really hammered home my mentor and my boss there. He often talked about this thing called your unique ability. And it's sort of like every agent there, you have a unique ability and you have to maximize that. And you have to find ways to the things that you're not good at sort of farm out to other people and sort of, especially when you're building a team. And so that started hitting me about three or four years ago. And people started saying like, I love what you did in this property. Is there any way you would consider doing mine? So at first, Stage to Sell was sort of like a hobbyist business, right? I didn't own as much inventory. I was just sort of doing it casually. There was no marketing. There was no business. Like it just, if a project came to me, it would come to me. But now I've definitely just been working on growing the business and the brand out. And then your brand has grown quite a bit as well, because I've seen so much press you've gone on your website and also your social media as well. I mean, you got quite a big following now. So how has that changed your business? It's created an awareness outside of the typical realm. So, you know, it's interesting. I always see sort of like within the networking stuff of staging, a lot of people starting in the business asking more senior people, like, how did you get your start? What did you do? And so I always tell people like, the number one thing to do is network with real estate agents. 
at the end of the day, even though the homeowner is paying you, the real estate agent is your client, right? And so like the more enmeshed you are with a broker, brokerage firm, the easier it's going to be because they're the ones who are constantly going to be referring you. So, you know, I was always so focused on the real estate aspect of it, but then I started through a lot of the companies that I work with, buy things with, getting featured by, I started getting more and more people who were interested in design. And typically like designers, I think sort of look down at staging as sort of like fast design. It's very homogenous. There's nothing unique about it. And that's where I think being, you know, more creative and trying to take a unique artistic approach to staging, it's definitely expanded the reach. It's helped me bring in larger projects, different clients. And it's just opened me up to a larger design world that I didn't always know existed. Yeah. And I also feel like your presentation is really in a way different than the typical stager. Like you have a professionally photographed, you yourself is professionally photographed and you're constantly in your photo as well, which I think is quite different than a lot of how stagers market themselves. So it's interesting. I remember once a couple of years ago, talking with the social media team at Compass and the woman who ran the team and I were just very close. We had a great rapport. And so I was talking about the different guidelines and principles. And so one of her things was she's like, we'll never use an image. that's not professionally photographed. And so that was sort of a moment for me where I realized like, oh, that's actually really like, if you want to establish a brand. And again, I think you have to understand too, like when I talk about what I've learned there, when I started there, it was a startup with like, 50 people and was considered a joke within New York City real estate. And now it's a top three firm national presence is 25,000 people within Compass. And it's pretty much, I believe we're in every state in the US. And it's a publicly traded company now over the course of eight years. And so I realized like, okay, so only professional photography. And that's something where like, when people ask about social media and how to use it to grow your business, like, the Instagram stories is great for the day-to-day stuff and showing the process and the behind the scenes and sort of the late nights and what goes into something. But for static, old school Instagram, it's only a professional image. To be honest, I was not someone who likes to be photographed in their projects or make it about me, but I did come to understand and realize through a lot of friends within just the world it's really how it works. Like if you want to establish yourself as a brand and you want people to know and recognize you and you want to stand out in the marketplace, you do have to make it sort of about you. And so for me, I don't think I'm that interesting. And I don't want to put, you know, sort of like my personal life on display. So what I find is when I'm photographed in the spaces, I, I like to talk about the process and I like to talk about what inspired me within the house or the things I've collected. Like I'm away right now upstate and like the one thing I've been doing is antiquing like anywhere I could go. And that's part of why I have unique pieces is if I travel, I'm looking for things that you typically can't find in a store or order wholesale to make things look unique. So while I'm part of it, I try and focus on the stuff that it's about and less sort of like, here I am standing in the living room. It works for a lot of people. It doesn't work for me. 
No, I love that because I think that is the authenticity of you and you really come through, through your brand and through your personality and through your work as well. I mean, when I look at your staging, I get a really like a good sense of who you are. Personally, I really feel intrigued. I'm like, really? Who am I? Tell me. I think, no, you're you're very artsy. I think you love colors. You have some really bold choices as well. And you also are not afraid of mixing things. Like I, I can tell that you play with things a lot. You really experiment and you really try. I'm really intrigued by how we relate to our spaces and vice versa. And I, I'm sure you feel the same way. Like you walk into space, you can get a sense of feeling oh, the homeowner oh. is. And I think those are kind of things that we also reflect in our brand as well and how we approach things. Like I'm a very direct person. I think people get that sense when they look at my Instagram, look at my the way I write my blog, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that is really important, especially today. I think there's a lot of fake stuff out there. Also, there's a lot of noise. There's tons of influencer and all this stuff. I think people are tired. They really want people they can connect with. And that's why it's important to show your face. Even though I'm actually an introverted person, but I'm just like, you know what? Beyonce has her Sasha Fierce persona. And that's how I am with my business. I have my this public persona. But in real life, all I want to do is stay in bed. You have your Sasha Fierce. Yeah, like in my real life, I just want to be in bed and then, you know, watch Netflix and eat chocolate and then hang out with my dog and that's it, you know? That sounds great. (laughs) Ideal life. If I could just run my life from my bed, that would be amazing. Totally. It's funny. I was like, I just want to go sit outside because the weather with the Hurricane Henry here has been terrible. So it just cleared. I was like, I'll throw on a sweater over like my pajamas and my house slippers that I have on and like be cool. I hear you. That's it, exactly. And so what do you think attributed to your success? I'm maniacal with stuff. I mean, I really am. Like I'm really, you know, creating these unique spaces. Like it is trial and error. It's hard manual labor. Like it's really getting your hands dirty and sometimes like bleeding. And I think that's really like, I'm not scared to work. And I'm not scared to put in the work to something. And that's where a lot of it comes from. When I look back or when I try and look at the projects like I'm most proud of or that I think are turning points within my career, they're the ones where really like I was there at two o'clock in the morning and I did have to have phone calls or sit down meetings with the owners and say, listen, like I've got some really tough things I'm going to tell you about your property and why for four years, it didn't sell. And it's going to, but you're going to have to listen to me. Like, you're going to have to trust me. I think when you start to get comfortable enough to do that, that's where you start to have success. Running a small staging business, like it's a massive investment, right? To own all your inventory. It's constantly rotating. You're always trying to keep labor costs down by trying to do as much work as you can and find that sort of balance. So it's really like this combination of like an unwavering attention to detail, sort of like what you're saying is what a complete stranger picks up within images that they're seeing on social media, and then sort of creating this roadmap of how to make that happen and how to make that happen within every project, regardless of the budget or things like that. No, I agree. And do you ever feel burnt out? Because you do do a lot, I feel like, just judging from what you do. Like, I really want to take a nap. And I will. But the thing is, like, I live for it. Like, I 
absolutely love doing it. It's not like my job. Like this is my life. This is my passion. Like when I, again, was that little kid who, when their friends were out on the street playing baseball and football, like I was reading shelter magazines and redecorating my room, like at 10 years old, you know, my mother will often bring up these times where, and I completely had forgotten about them. Like I used to come home from summer camp, you know, I stopped going to summer camp when I was like 12 and like one summer, all I did was reorganize the garage. One summer was the pantry. Like I had this whole system that I created. So it's sort of like when you discover what you do, who you are as a person, like that passion that's in you, the getting tired stuff, you just learn to work past it and or catch up on it when you can. Like yesterday, I had a really good nap, like really good. Oh, it's all about naps as adults, isn't it? (laughs) I mean, I wish I got more of them, but I don't. But when I do, it's such a beautiful, incredible thing. But it's tough. You know, I have a young daughter and like, I love like being with her is my favorite thing to do aside from like creating these things. So finding that balance or finding ways sometimes like on the weekends to bring her to projects and make it fun for her so I can be with her, but also be with my projects and things like that. I love that. I love that you bring your daughter to your project. That must be thrilling for her as well to see so many different houses. It's fun. It's so funny because we're like, we're literally going antiquing and it like, I try and make it like it's a game. Like it's the game where, so like some stores, she's four and a half. So I don't want her touching stuff. And like, I'm terrified she's going to break something. And, you know, you walk into an antique store with a four and a half year old and the owner looks at you like, oh, so like she has to hold my hand with both her hands. She gets like a prize when she does that. And we, we look for things. So like, we'll look for, can we find Santa Claus? Can we find the duck? And it's so funny because we were just in this one store where the woman she left with my partner and she was standing outside while I was paying for something. And she's like, where did your daughter go? And I was like, oh, she's like, she's like, she's the most well-behaved child I've ever met. She's like, I have a surprise for her. She's like, I want to show her something. And I was like, okay. And I was like, what is she going to show her? And she had a, her bunny rabbit behind the cash register. And so we went outside and she brought her the bunny rabbit to go pet. And it was just, it was really sweet. So. Oh, that's amazing. I try and make it fun. Like sometimes I feel guilty. Like, should she be at a playground where she's in an apartment? But we have fun. And sometimes if I'm doing a kid's room, I'll have her come in and she'll make paintings and then I'll put them up on the wall. And that's like the art in the kid's room. So not a lot, but here and there, I have to bring her to stuff to get them done. I think it's amazing. My mom worked a lot when I was a child and I think she gets some of the mom guilt sometimes. I'm like, I don't remember any of that. I just remember being in your business, you know, being early on. And I think that also helped me now with my own business. Both my parents had their own businesses and they had a really profound influence on me, I think, that I did not realize until I was adult. Yeah, it's very much the same for me. Same, but different. Like my mom was a single mom and worked two full-time jobs. So I always, people ask, like, how did you get your work ethic? Like, where does that come from? And that's sort of where it came from. And part of it was I did grow up in a house where my mom was very vocal that if she didn't get a paycheck, like, we may not have a roof over our heads. So for me, that's the work ethic I've had has always come from sort of that. Like things, I never got anything handed to me. Everything that I have has been sort of like self-built. Yeah, I think that's incredible. 
And so now that your business is fairly successful and you've got lots of amazing projects done and press as well, do you still get resistance from sellers or agents or like, mm, I'm just not into staging? There's always some resistance on some level. I mean, the biggest issue I face, and I'm sure everyone faces, is sort of like, you know, there's always someone who can do something for less. So that's often one of the objections we'll deal with and sort of showing and explaining what your dollar gets you. And, you know, I often ask people just very point blank, before we go any further with this, are you more interested in trying to save $2,000 or trying to make an extra $100,000? And that's sort of, I know when to spend time with someone and when not to. And I think that's one of the most important things. It's like, it does take a little bit of timing and balls to be able to ask someone that, but that often is the case. Like I've had people say like, well, I have this other proposal and they're $2,000 less than you. And it's like, well, in my pitch decks, here's 37 examples of where our project, like here's the return on investment. And so like, I know who the other pitch deck is from, or I know who you've met with. It's a very different sort of thing. So again, it's, we're talking about making an investment and getting a return on investment. So if you're just focused on how do I save $2,000 and put furniture into a house, my focus and my business and what I'm obsessed with is creating something to give someone a larger return on investment. Like they're two very different things. So that's typically like the real resistance that I'll come up against. Yeah. I love that you're very data driven and I see that on your story as well. And I think it's amazing because I think most stages really focus on, well, like our work is really beautiful or, you know, we have the largest warehouse, but as a client, you really don't care. I just really care. Yeah. Yeah. money, Right. So in your proposal, it sounds like it's your pitch deck. So what do you usually include in your pitch deck? It's really across the board, but it tries to strike sort of the balance of everything. There's sort of like, the before and afters, case studies with metrics, the wow factor, and the sort of like update, don't renovate. One of the things I specialize on in New York and Brooklyn is estate properties. So essentially, someone has passed away, the apartment has been inherited by a set of heirs, and they're trying to figure out what to do with it. In a lot of those scenarios, typically when someone passes away, you know, they're older, the apartment or house has fallen sort of into disrepair. And so there's often not the time to renovate. If you're doing an apartment, you have to deal with the co-op awards and all these sort of like the department of buildings and permits. So we try and approach things again, more cosmetically. And so that's, I'll show those metrics. And I think sort of to go back to your other question of, do I face resistance? I face a lot less resistance than I did five years ago. And I think a big part of it comes from I know what people are looking at. At the end of the day, if someone is looking to stage their home, they're looking to make more money. So if you're telling people in advance how I can help you make more money, here's my process. And here's 50 examples of how we've helped other sellers make more money. There's less room for objection. So if you're focused on, you know, we just make things beautiful, we make things nice, I have the biggest warehouse, I have the best selection of headboard, I don't know, whatever it is, like, who cares? I mean, like, I care, but the seller doesn't care. Like, the seller just wants to know, if I give you X, can you give me X plus? And so that's really what I try to focus on. Now, I don't win every project. And there's like a few recently where, you know, they went with someone cheaper 
and that's fine. I know that there's so much in the pipeline already. I don't necessarily need to worry about it. But here and there, there are certain projects that I want really badly. And they're just the ones that like call out to me. And those are ones where I'll be a little bit more aggressive and like, tell me why you want to go with someone else. Who else are you planning to go with? And sometimes the competitors are incredibly competent, amazing, really talented, and sort of like, it just is what it is. Other times there may be just a disconnect in personality type. And I just sort of let that be, but here and there, like I've pushed to bring in a project that I feel like is something that stage to sell should be doing. And the result will be something special and it works. But other times, like, I just know that it's just not meant to happen. Yeah. Sometimes it's not the right project for you either. That's the same. The right person. And it's the thing I always sort of have to remind others, you're entering into a relationship, right? And you're dealing with like one of the most deeply personal, important things. So sometimes, sometimes you're just not meant to work with certain people. Like there are also a lot of times where, you know, agents will come back to me and say, listen, if you could just come down to here, they'll do this. But there's been so much back and forth engagement already from the other side. And I see how they act. I see how they respond. And I just say no. And I think that's, you know, one of the rare joys and benefits of building something that you're so meticulous and passionate about, because you do at times not always get the ability to say no to a project where you know, it's going to be more problem than it's going to be worth. And that's, I think something that's important once you get to a certain level is there are so many clues and so many red flags that a client will show that are going to drag you down from other projects and drag you down from something bigger. So I think for the newer people that are out there who are listening, sometimes you have to step back and realize why you didn't get a project. And it may be for your benefit. It may be something you don't know at this moment, but like in two weeks, something else will change and another project comes your way because there are those clues that people give out and it's just, yeah. Yeah. I always think of client relationship like dating, you know? Oh, totally. There's all these red flags. If you choose to ignore it, you're going to pay for it later on. Oh, no. It's such a, there's so many projects where, and it's interesting because I track all the things that we send out a proposal for. And I look at them like three, four, six months later. I would say the majority of things that I say no to don't come to market or don't sell or get a substantial price reduction. And when I follow up with the agent, or just see them in passing at something. And I ask like, oh, how's it going? They're always like, oh my God, the word, like it's almost always without exception. They're like, wow, you dodged a bullet and not, I'm like, I told you I'm not doing it. There's a reason why they're awful. That's incredible. What are some of the metrics you normally track? So we'll look at sort of the targeted sale price pre-staging. And so Again, it is one of the advantages to being in a market where there is so much data available. And also just from talking to the agents and the sellers, like there's a house I did this past winter where the market was still sort of at a standstill here and everyone was panicked. Properties were not moving. Nobody really knew what was happening. And when we were talking, the data was saying like somewhere between like the house should transact between like 3.6 and like 3.8. And in their discussions, they were like, if we can even get 3.65, the broker was very sort of skeptical that they would even get 3.7 for the property. When you start to like really distill down and see like the comps of 3.8, you know, they're on a better block, they have this, their backyard's bigger, like certain things on a spreadsheet may match up. But when you really start to research it, 
we sort of put it at 3.7 was the price pre-staging. And so the house sold essentially before it was listed for 425 all cash. And it was really interesting because it was one of them where they planned to go on the market mid-March. We signed the agreement in February. It was a beautiful house. It wasn't too far from me. So I said, like, can I start working on it ahead of time so I can really, it's like just beautiful. It's the house from like the very late 1800s. It was redeveloped by a company that's very famous for taking sort of Victorian and Edwardian houses, making them modern. So usually there's elements that are retained in the parlor. The rest of the house typically strip because it sort of has deteriorated. Very modern, but with sort of like a lot of old world detail. And so that's like my wheelhouse. I love that. And so it's funny because, again, when you're in the business a long time, you know how to read between the lines. The seller was sort of like, well, we don't want you going in until this date. So I called him and said, why don't you want me going in until this date? He goes, well, because we're not sure the house is going to sell. And if you start early, then the agreement ends. And I was like, no, no, no. I was like, listen, this is my company. I'm going to put it in writing. I'm going to actually give you an extra week for the agreement to start after photography. So like the agreement will start, let's just say March 15th, but it's February 4th and I'm just going to start working on it at night and in passing. And so I started doing my Instagram stories in the house and the process and the things that I was charmed with. And should I go in this direction or go in this design direction? Here's the artwork. Do you like this? Do you like that? And so I'm connected to a ton of real estate agents and the house is very special. And they all kept saying like, how do I get in before it goes on market? So I would just send them over to the agent. And so she started showing there were offers in before we were finished and the house was photographed. And essentially they weren't even going to list the house because they felt that the offers were strong enough, but did the photo shoot listed the house. It came to market on, let's say a Thursday, the buyer who, won the best and final. She came in on Friday. She, over the weekend, had the house inspected on Monday morning. The deposit was put down on the house and she was officially in contract within like three days. You know, one of the things that I often talk about with sellers who are sort of questioning this is, aside from just the return on investment, there's also the time and there's also the buyer who wants something so bad that they move so fast and they essentially say to you, and this is what always happens, dictate the terms. And again, we went from a month ago being on a call and them saying like, we're not sure that the house will transact between like this three, six and three, eight. We're worried about that. We may have to extend the staging agreement past three months because we don't know if it will sell and we may need more time. We had the house fully cleared out within like a week of when the contract officially started and they closed a week later. You know, again, when you sort of create these specialty things. And the market here wasn't doing well. The market had not fully picked up yet, but there were people who just were looking for property, felt it was special. And it was just funny because it was one of those where she was like, I want everything. And I was like, it's not really for sale. And she was like, this is the greatest thing I've ever seen. Now hurry up and get the fuck out. Like she was so hell bent on closing as soon as possible. And that's something, again, we sort of talk with sellers about that we're going to work with. Like, if you create something so special, like you don't just get you priced, but you also get someone that tells you, you tell me what you want and I'll do it, which is like one of the greatest benefits of being a seller. The process of buying and selling can be so contentious between the two parties. 
Yeah, no, I love that story. How incredible. Oh yeah, my God. wild. It is wild. So what did the seller say then? <laughs> Just like, I'm love, totally they, they were very, 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 very happy. Like a love letter. Amazing. Yeah, really nice. It sounds like you don't sell your inventory from the houses you stage, but how do you retire your inventory? Some things I will if I can replace them easily or, you know, it also just comes down to a number, right? So like sometimes I just say, tell me, okay, you want to buy this piece? What's it worth? Then if I think that number works, then I'll sell it. I haven't retired too much inventory yet. I've donated some stuff. I've sold some things. We really try and recycle as much as humanly possible. Like when I first started once, I remember making a target run on vacation because we had a car and I bought all these like 84 inch long curtains and the window height in Manhattan is typically like 102. So I had like 30 curtain panels of 82 inch length that we never used. So like some of them became shower curtains, some of them became table runners, others we pack our stuff with. So I haven't retired too much, but We'll turn not so great furniture into outdoor furniture. We'll turn stuff that maybe was bedroom furniture now into kids' room furniture. We'll paint over something like that's, you know, again, where a lot of your margins and your business are, or I'll donate it. Sometimes we'll do certain occupied projects where they live in it and we don't want to come back and take anything out. And so, like, there's, like a little corner where some inventory is. Like if I take on one of those projects, I try and use up that inventory. I see. And how often do you buy stuff? Oh my God, every day. <laughs> I mean, that's honestly, this my staging business is really just a justification for being like a shopaholic. That's really like all it is. That's incredible. I mean, how big is your warehouse then? We're actually moving into our first real warehouse. I have been sort of where a lot of stages are, where you start with like one storage room and go to another and another. And so I'd been looking for warehouse space for quite some time. I signed the lease months ago and I'm moving in nine days, 10 days, Labor Day weekend. We will be laboring all weekend long. We're bringing everything to a 3,500 square foot warehouse, which is huge for sort of like Manhattan, Brooklyn, small boutique staging business. So I'm super excited. I now need to like really know how to make a warehouse space super functional. I think the biggest challenge I've faced is being as busy as we are and doing the amount of projects we are like working out of now what is 17 storage rooms and the facility that we're at, they shut down the passenger elevator. So the freight is the only thing that works on four separate floors. So it's really challenging. Like lately, I've been waking up at 5.36. I get there, start pulling and organizing and try and shift all the stuff from different floors to like one area. That the movers will come and pick it up. But that all ends in like 10 days. I'm very Congratulations. Excited. You will love it. You will love yeah. it. Well, the best thing is, and this was one of the things that I, some spaces were just too big, some too small. I was like, you know, like Goldilocks. The one thing this space had were two things. One is it's actually like my biggest competitor's space. They're upgrading to something larger. It's funny, like they're my competitor, but I think they're the most talented, incredible. Like I live for their stuff. Like I'm such a fangirl of theirs. So we have a great relationship. They also needed to break their lease. So it sort of worked out perfect. They're moving into something much bigger a few doors down. I'm taking it over. So it's got that good energy. But the other part is there's a loading dock directly onto the street. 
So there's no freight elevator. There's no one else in the building. It's just literally the truck backs up. And when I had gone to tour the space, we were talking about it and they had said sort of like what I was thinking is that probably saves three hours a day on each install and removal. Like you're just direct from the door. You don't have to wait for anyone else. There's no issues. There's no problems. A lot of these buildings with freights, like they're old century old building so the freights are always down so this was what i was sort of holding out for and initially i was looking for something a lot smaller and it was just sort of nerve-wracking but i just decided to bite the bullet and fully commit to it and realize like i can't move into a space that i'm going to outgrow in two years like i have to move into the space that i can grow into for a few years yeah, that sounds incredible. I think it's a total game changer, especially you don't have to go to a bunch of different storage units to pull all the stuff. Yeah, and to be able to work in your own space and like have an office and be creative to just start laying things out ahead of time to walk a project that you're going to install in three weeks and be able to just plan it right there, set it aside in a corner and have it ready to go to have a space to make artwork and to do things and to take old pieces of furniture, fix them, paint them, do whatever we need to do. Like I've never had that. We're always doing it on site, which is also just really challenging and makes installs last a lot longer to be putting furniture together on site or to be repainting a dresser on site, as opposed to just like throwing down a drop cloth in your own space and doing it. Yeah, I love it. I mean, ours, we could even park our van inside so we can sometimes just preload or just too tired. I can just leave it as is. I don't have to like run a truck, for example, back to yeah. a rental or stuff like that. It just, it's amazing. Congratulations. That's really Thank exciting. You. I'm so excited. And so what are some of the biggest lessons in the last two years for running your business? I think for me personally, just like knowing when to really commit to something and knowing it's time to take something from a hobby to a business. You know, I was always like saying like, no, I'm a real estate agent. Like I'm not a stager. I don't know what I was doing. People were always like, please come and work on my listing. Like I was in your project or, you know, I'd seen that project two years ago with another agent and I just walked it down and it's like a completely different thing. And I fought that. And so I think just knowing what makes you special and what you do, like, and just doubling down on that. And I also think just this last year and a half of the pandemic, being on all these other calls with sagers from across the country and listening to what was going on and how scared it was and not knowing. And then we started seeing like, wow, the housing market's really picking up and shelter is actually the most important thing. And I think there's a lot of fear in what we do and what's been going on now. And so I think if you realize like how important shelter is and how important of a role you can play in that, you'll have a successful business. Like I said earlier, I think for anyone who's starting out now, who's wondering, like, how do you really get your foot in the door? And how do you get clients? The most important thing is building an incredible network with real estate agents. Like that is your absolute bread and butter. That is your client base. Like everything you can do to network with real estate agents, you know, and I know in some markets, like, in New York, we're not really doing office meetings yet in person much, but any opportunity you can to speak to agents as a whole, to speak to a company. And, you know, the big part of that is also developing what you're going to speak about and sort of like what you said earlier, you know, you have to realize why people are hiring you. So if you're just focusing on saying like, we make this look good, that's true, but 
people are really interesting in how to sell something. And again, if you're newer in the business, you may not have that yet, figuring out how to start to build that immediately. And, you know, I think one of the tips for anyone who's listening, who's just starting out, looking at stale properties and how can you change them? When I first started, that's where I excelled was something's been on the market for a year, two years. And even now, like that's one of the biggest metrics I push is sort of like two years on market, three years on market, a hundred and whatever it is. And then what we've done and then the new time on market. And so, you know, I think for a lot of newer people figuring out the sort of like careful way to get in and start working on dated, tired, unsold listings. And the disconnect is, you know, while you're trying to network with the agent, the agent may be part of the problem. Like they may not want to admit that they've been trying to sell something that's so part of it is figuring out who you can get to who understands that the property needs to be repositioned and helping them to create dialogue to talk to the owner about it. Because that's one of the biggest issues. Like even still, there's times where I see listings. So I follow on a lot of the aggregation sites. I have folders that say listings that need staging. And so there's certain neighborhoods that I watch, certain building types that I watch, agents who send me, you know, I'm on all these email lists. So sometimes I just get an email about a new listing. I'm like, oh my God, that looks terrible. That is the most horrific looking thing. Like, how did you even put that in an email? There's one listing in particular that was in a a larger brand ad in Architectural Digest. And so I reached out to the agent. And I was like, hi. And she knew who I was, thankfully. And I said, you know, I know this is going to sound really crazy, but I was at the dentist's office and there was an Architectural Digest from like 2019. And I saw your listing at such and such address. And I, I noticed it's still for sale. And I'm just curious, like, if they ever thought about staging and she like, it's still on market and we're still sort of taught like there's some fundamental issues with the seller. So I think it's one of those like I'll probably stay away from, but looking at and seeing some of the listings and figuring out how to create a pitch around that, I think is probably the best way to really sort of get your foot in the business. I love that. That is great advice. And I think that's a perfect place to end today's show. So thank you so much. (laughs) That was amazing. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. So that's it for today's show. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to help and support the show, there are three ways to do so. You can leave a review and rating on iTunes. You can share the show on social media, or you can donate to support the maintaining costs for the podcast. You can make a donation through the show notes or on the sidebar of our site. If you haven't left a review on iTunes, please do so. This will help us grow the show and book more guests. If you have any questions, feedback, and suggestions, you can comment on the show notes. You can also find the show notes by going to stagemore.com slash podcast. That's it. Have a fantastic week and happy staging. Happy staging.